Amen. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the gathering. Find the table, sit with some people. We love to be a church, that's a community. We're going to have some time of uh, table discussion and hopefully time for some prayer tonight, so make sure you're, you're sitting at a table. Let's just start with some prayer. I felt like we need to pray. Father God, we come before you as a journey, as a family, and Lord, we pray that we want to receive what you have for us to receive, God. We thank you for the worship. We thank you for the meal. I thank you for every heart in here. God, I pray that we would, um, we would do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, that we would have courage in this hour to be the church, to be the light. That we would fill and be your hands and feet in this world. So I pray for tonight for the tables that people will feel encouraged, that they will leave hopeful, that they would uh, get to know somebody, Lord, a brother and sister in Christ, and that it would be a blessing to them. We pray this in Jesus' name name. Amen. Well, welcome, you guys. We, we are started in a new series. Last week, Jeremy opened up with Psalm 89. And I love the Psalms. Psalms is probably my, one of my favorite books in the Bible. If I was on a deserted island, that question, I'd probably either take the Gospel of Luke or John, and I would also take the Psalms. Why is that? Why are the Psalms so powerful? Well, I think the Psalms are probably the most honest book in the Bible. You see the raw emotion of not only David, but many other writers in the book. It's real. You see things like, God, you know, destroy my enemies, make them a footstool for me. Or, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? You see the real heart behind it. And I think that's why David or God called David a man after his own heart. It wasn't because he was perfect, it was because he was honest. And when we're honest with God, I believe that he gets to begin to do a work in our life. When we actually, because he knows what we're dealing with, he knows what we're thinking, he knows how we're feeling. And when we come to him in honesty, I think that's when that great exchange happens, when, when we trade him our sorrows, we trade him our disappointments, even our bitterness, anger, and frustration. We trade him those things for joy for peace, for comfort. But I think sometimes we are afraid of honesty just because we've kind of been taught that, you know, holiness is pretending like everything's okay. That's not the definition of holiness. We're holy because of Christ's blood, of his death and resurrection because he calls us holy. We're holy because we get to behold the one who is holy and we get to be transformed like him. Now, Psalm 89 is interesting because it starts out with God's covenant promises. The, the writers, it's, it's in a sense, it's a prayer to God to remember. Remember to carry out your covenant promises because you are faithful, because you are good, because you are loving. But there's also this tension in Psalm 89 of, God, where are you? This is what you promised. Where is it? How come we are not seeing the manifestation of that promise? Is it because of us? Is it because of you? What's the deal? I think this is something that we all can relate to. I'm sure there's many of us waiting here who are waiting for the manifestation of a promise. Maybe it's healing in our body. Maybe it's transformation 
or deliverance or some other thing, financial breakthrough or relationship or relationship promise. There's many things that a lot of us were waiting to see a manifestation for. Or even for some of us, there's maybe some disappointment. Maybe you feel like God doesn't listen to you. Maybe you feel like God works for somebody else, but maybe not for you because you've done something wrong. There's a lot of reasons and, and as I would say, kind of ruts or traps that we can fall into when we're in this process of waiting for this manifestation. But tonight we're gonna look at uh, the Davidic covenant and God's promise to David and we're gonna be in Psalm 89, verse three and four, and I'll read it. He says, I'm using the ESV. He says, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I swore an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your descendants forever and I will build up your throne from generation to generation. That's an amazing promise. What a covenant is, I, I want us to focus on this idea of covenant. This is something I've talked about, something I've been studying and I'd love to learn about is that it's a, a covenant is an oath bound, promise or pledge to bless or serve another party in some specified way that implies relationship. It is more than a mutual contract or alliance, although sometimes it takes characteristics of those. And so it, it goes beyond this idea of a, of a contract. It's God who's pledging himself, he's pledging his faithfulness, he's pledging everything and he's putting on the line and saying, I am gonna work for your behalf. It's gonna be me who establishes your descendants. I'm the one who makes a covenant. I'm the one who keeps it. And for us, that might, you know, we, we hear of the covenants in the Old Testament, you know, the covenant with Noah, covenant of Abraham, and then he confirms it with Jacob, covenant with David. But for us, one example that God has given us that might help us understand covenant is the marriage covenant. And the example I use, I heard um, Jimmy Evans talk about marriage covenant, and this is how he defines it. He says, a marriage covenant is I surrender my rights and take full responsibility for the relationship. So there's full commitment. And he contrasts that with the contract. The contract is I'm gonna protect my rights and take little to no responsibility for the relationship. This is partial commitment. So you see the difference between the two. And if we were to compare this to the covenant that God makes to us, God is the one who fully commits. He's the one who fully takes responsibility to his side of keeping the covenant, despite our failings. We especially see this with Christ, where it says Christ came, he died, and that was the seal of the covenant for us. And that's how we know that he's willing to go all the way for us, to hold his side of the promise of this covenant. But as we see in the Old Testament, there's also consequences. There's consequences when people break the covenant agreement. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a good example of that. This nation that God wants to be a, a nation of priests, a nation of kings, a light to the world, they start allowing idolatry into their heart. They start chasing after all their gods. They, they wanna be like other nations. And instead of being this light, they become sometimes even, it says, I don't remember what it says in the Bible, but they actually became worse than their surrounding nations. 
And so they, they went into exile, they went into slavery. Their, their capital city, their temple, lied in ruins. They, fa- they failed to live up to God's covenant agreement with them. They forsook their God and invited ruin, destruction into the land. If we're talking about David, you always have to refer to Saul because David was Israel's second king. Saul was Israel's first king, and you can see um, his failure as a king, and it can be a, kind of sounds wrong, but a good example for us today of what not to do. I wanna read this part because God actually makes a covenant with Saul, but Saul doesn't live up to it, and I wanna look at this in 1 Samuel 13, 13, 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God in which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It's quite sobering when you think about it. Because we start off this passage reading about the covenant that God made with David, but we find out that there was another covenant with Saul, but God rejected him. Instead, choosing David, a man after his own heart. Now, this may seem that God has forsaken his covenant, as we're talking about God fully committing to something. But God is always committed to his side of it. And this part was he's going to establish his kingdom forever. Now, you and I can vote yes or no or be indifferent about it, but that's not going to stop the Lord from establishing his kingdom. But it was Saul's disobedience that caused the Lord to reject him and, and choose David. That's quite, that's uh, kind of scary if you think about it. But the thing is that God desires to carry out his promises through a relationship of faith and obedience. And that's why he chose David. I love David. He's someone that I really admire and respect. He was a man after God's heart. He's the only one that had that title. He had his failures. He had his ups and downs. But he always repented and always sought after God in an honest fashion. And God did amazing things in his life when he was king. And it was because of God's favor and because of God's covenant promises Like we say, he says, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I swore an oath to David. I'm gonna uphold and keep him. I'm gonna bless his life. And I want us to see tonight this, look at this Davidic covenant. What was God's covenant promises to David? And I think what's interesting is that we know someone's character not by our, um, by not only their promises that they make, but their faithfulness in keeping them. You can tell a lot about someone's character by if they actually keep their promises. And so we're gonna learn a lot by, about God by his promises to David. And I'm gonna read this section and then we're gonna discuss it at our table, so it's a long passage, but um, look for some of the things that God promises to do in David's life. This is 2 Samuel 8, 8 through 17. It says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should not, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. 
And I will make for you a great name, like the name of great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all the, these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So at our tables, my question tonight is, what promises or blessings does the David covenant contain? So you can... Look at it at the screen, or you can write down some of the things. What are some of the things that God promises? What are some of the blessings that he describes in this passage? And this is 2 Samuel 8, 8 through 17. So you can read at your table and discuss among yourselves. <clears throat> All right, you guys can begin to wrap that up. There's a lot of them in there. There's a lot. Maybe you found more than I did, but some of the ones that I found were... Uh, shepherd to king, so an idea of promotion. Shepherd to king. Uh, God's presence and help against enemies, deliverance. Making David a great name, that's favor and influence. Establishing a nation, protection against violence, so establishment. Rest against enemies, that's peace or rest. Building a house. When, you, when the Bible talks about house, building the house of David is not necessarily talking about a physical building, it's more of a legacy or family. His offspring shall rule after him, so highly favored descendants. This covenant is not just for David, but those who come after him. The throne of his kingdom shall be forever. It's a royal legacy, which even um, is prophetic for Jesus in his coming. The father-son relationship, where he says, I will be like a father to you. This is uh, God's presence and relationship. Discipline. We may not like that one, but I look at discipline as also instruction, guidance, keeping us from uh, harming ourselves, from harming other people. Uh, steadfast love that will not depart. This is God's faithfulness and love. That's a lot. That's an amazing. That's a good deal. Let's sign up for that one. But here's the thing. That's the Vedic covenant. It says in Hebrews 8.6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since is it enacted on better promises. So the, the new covenant in which we're in is better, far more better than the old, and we actually have better promises. Though I think a lot of those promises that still apply to us, we have better ones. And for about two minutes at your table, what are some of these better promises? I'm not gonna give them, give them away to you. Well, I want you guys to talk about your table. What are some of these new covenant promises that God has blessed us with? Let's talk about that for about two minutes. Go ahead.
So here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you guys because this is part of our journey and part of our pursuit. I want you guys to discover, or hopefully this piqued your interest, is God says, or Hebrews says that this is a better covenant, that it's better because it's enacted on better promises. And if you don't know what those things are, I hope you go on kind of a treasure hunt and find out. But I'll give you one. One, of the, one is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, it was a visitation culture, right? The, the Spirit of God will, would, would rest on someone, but it would also depart for a little while. Just like Saul, the Spirit of God came upon him, but also it departed. But in this new covenant, the Holy Spirit's a gift, and it actually says it dwells inside of us because we are the temple of God. And that's an amazing gift. Just even a study alone on the Holy Spirit is going to be um, very, very beneficial, but also very long. It's a, you can exhaust that study so much. But I encourage you to do that. But here's the thing. Psalm 89 in the Passion Translation, which is what I like to read for personal devotion, the author titles it, Will You Reject Us Forever? Because it has this undertone of tension, like I was saying. This tension comes from the lack of visible manifestation of what God has promised in the Davidic covenant. And I kind of want to take a sneak peek of the ending because it starts off very strong. You know, it's, it's like a prayer to God. Remember, this, this is your promise. This is your covenant. You're faithful. You're going you're gonna to keep your word. But then it seems like halfway through, it kind of turns and looks very differently, the tone of it, that is. And I'll give you a sneak peek to the end. It says, so God, where is all this love and kindness you promised us? What happened to your covenant with David? Have you forgotten how your own servants are being slandered? Lord God, it seems like I'm carrying in my heart all the pain and abuse of your forgotten ones. They have relentlessly insulted and persecuted us, your anointed ones. Nevertheless, blessed be our God forever and over. Amen. Faithful is our king. So you see this undertone almost says, God, where are you? How come you've forgotten about us? And the, the time frame of this psalm is, is interesting because they don't know when it was, but you can almost see it as, as someone who's living in, in exile in Babylon, right? It's like, why are we slaves in Babylon? Why is our, our kingdom in ruins? How come there's not a king sitting on the throne? This is what you promised David, right? That there would be, that you would establish his throne forever and ever, that there would be someone sitting on the throne? Where is this promise? What happens? I believe that we can have two responses when we're in a situation like this. When we are questioning and we're not sure why it is something, why it is a promise hasn't manifested. The first response is that we can blame God and say, God, you're not good. God, you're not faithful. Or, you know, you're a liar. Or you're weak, you're powerless. You know, our enemies are stronger than you. You can find ways to blame God. Or a lot of times we blame ourselves. We'll live with guilt. We'll live with failure. We'll live with shame. And both of these, both of these things will actually keep us paralyzed. I think those two things are, are, are a trap that will keep us from actually finding out and seeing why these <clears throat> promises are not manifest. 
Those are two things we do not want to be in. We do not want to blame God. We also don't want to necessarily blame ourselves and stay in this place of guilt, failure, and shame. But I want to share with you guys tonight some principles of promises so that we have a better understanding of what's actually happening. I have a few of these things. This is not an exhaustive list, but very helpful. The first one is that promises are not automatic and ownership does not imply possession. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. Say you have a very wealthy relative, maybe a grandfather, and they pass away and one day you get a letter in the mail saying your rich grandfather has bestowed you his entire inheritance and he has given you a thousand acre ranch in Montana. Now, you can take that letter and read that and be very excited initially and be, this is amazing, I own a thousand acres in Montana. That's beautiful country, that's great place. I can do a lot with that. I can start my cattle operation. I could ride horses. I could do anything I want. But instead of doing that, maybe you take that piece of paper and you put it in your desk and you let it collect dust for a while. On the other hand, you can take that piece of paper and you can begin to explore what has been given to you. You can make it your own. You can go out there and see what your grandfather has bestowed upon you. I love this quote, it says, faith is the courage to explore what has been given to you by covenant. We get to explore what God has given us. And I think sometimes it's actually having the courage to do it or believing that God is wanting us to do that or to have that. Because the truth is, what use is a thousand acres if you aren't gonna do anything with it, if you aren't gonna explore it or see it for yourself or survey the land if I was a landowner, I'd go out there and explore every inch of it to see what I actually owned. Instead of just sit there and be, well, I have a thousand acres and I don't really know what I have and maybe there's squatters out there sitting on it. Who knows what they're doing? It's simply just a nice idea on paper, which is collecting dust. I'll give you another personal example. I remember during the economic depression, right, when everybody was buying guns and gold, it was an exciting time, sort of, for some people. And I kind of, I got kind of got caught in that rush, right? I, I was like, you know, I should buy some gold. I want to be a good steward. You know, if the dollar collapses, I'll have gold at least. Maybe I can use it to coat my teeth and have a nice smile or something. Who knows? But I talked to this company, and I was saying, okay, this is how much money I have, and and I'm interested in buying gold, and they're telling me, oh, that's great, you know, we'll sell you some gold, and blah, 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 but here's the thing, when you buy our gold, we're gonna keep it in our vault. I'm like, oh, that's great. That doesn't, you know, can you ship it to me, or can I have it? No, it's gonna be in our vault, and we're gonna, we're gonna hold on to it for you, but you still own it. And the more I talked with them, I'm like, wait a minute, like, if it's mine, and it's, but it's sitting in your vault, which is, I don't know even where it is, and I can't physically have it, does it really belong to me? And I told them, you know, I don't really like your idea of ownership. I think I'm gonna go a different course. 
But here's the thing is that ownership without possession isn't really ownership at all. It's just a nice idea. It's just a letter collecting dust. It's just gold sitting in a vault somewhere and us just having a piece of paper that says, hey, you own this much. But it's really not in your possession. I think we've been satisfied with that notion for too long in the church. Satisfied with the idea of something and not the possession of it. Because God calls us to take possession. Just like he called the Israelites, this is a good example. He says, wherever your foot will tread, I have given that land to you. So in some sense, it's God who has already given the land, and it's also them, because he says, wherever your foot treads, wherever you go. And so it had this partnership mentality that we have to take ownership and possess the promises of God. Number two, you will never write a check larger than what you know is in the account. If you do not know what's in the account, God's bank account, or his promises, then you're really never gonna write a check for that much. You might write small checks. You might have small prayers and asking God for little things, but because we don't know what's in the bank account, we're not gonna write their large checks. And also, another tip is that we're not the ones who are signing the checks. We're simply the ones who dispense them because Jesus Christ has already signed them with his blood. So it's not us who, who are gonna have to pay for this. It's Jesus has already paid for that. Three, you will never persevere for the release of a promise if you're trying to wrestle it from God's hand. A lot of times we try to wrestle God for things he already says yes to. But I, in Corinthians, we see that all God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. We're not asking or wrestling God to say yes to something that he's already said yes to. We're simply partnering with him for the release, the manifestation of the promise. Next is that you'll never see the manifestation of a promise in your life today if you believe it for another time. I think that's a huge one. A lot of times we'll just say, maybe that's just for another time because it's kind of this mysterious, we just sweep it under the rug kind of thing. It's for another time. God doesn't heal anymore. That's what he, he did 2,000 years ago, and we're gonna be healed when we're in heaven. You know, that's for healings for another time. And we say things like that, but really, do we really even know if it's for another time or not? How can we really know? How can we be so certain? I'm kind of want to challenge people who, who say that, is that you're not God. How do you know it's for another time? Timing is something that only God knows. We're, we're human beings, we're like dust. How, we know, how do we know it's for another time? Because even what Jesus taught us, he said to pray on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Next. You'll never approach the throne boldly if you let unworthiness, guilt, or shame keep you from asking. We're called to enter into the throne boldly, to ask, to be bold. If we let our unworthiness, our guilt, or shame keep you from asking the things that you want to ask, you're never going to receive. Because it says, you ask and you shall receive. And that's something that sometimes we, the church has been a, done a good job is, is that we like to focus more on the problem than God's solution. We like to focus more on 
on our unworthiness in Christ's worth, on, his, on what he has done. And lastly, I heard a preacher say this, and it makes a lot of sense. He says, prayer by itself is useless. Prayer by itself is useless because James tells us that it's only the prayer in faith that is effective. So we can pray all we want. We can ask for things, but it's only effective when it's a prayer in faith. And I kind of put a list there of what your prayers look like, what it should look like. One, is your prayer hopeful? Is it filled with hope and expectancy of what God wants to do? I think hope is very powerful because um, hope is expecting God to do something good. Fear is expecting for something wrong to happen. And they both kind of work in a similar fashion. And a lot of times as we think we, we give in to fear instead of hoping and expecting for something good to happen. Is your prayer full of expectancy? We should be expectant. We should know that our Father wants to bless us. Are they bold? Are they rooted in the goodness and faithfulness of God? Do we believe that God wants to bless us and do we believe that it's for today? And finally, do we persevere? I like the acronym, pray until something happens. Push, pray until something happens. Kind of goes with the timing thing. How do you know it's God's timing unless you've prayed until something happens? Just gotta keep praying. For many of us, God's promises are this mysterious thing. They're just these nice ideas in a book that's collecting dust on a shelf. But in, they're supposed to be this reality that is to be explored, that is supposed to be possessed, that is supposed to be discovered. It's like I was saying earlier, ownership without true possession is like gold in a vault. It's like a thousand acres to a place we've never even seen or been before or have no intention of going to. It's just a nice idea. And I'm kind of tired of nice ideas. I don't know about you guys, but I want to see some manifestations of promises in my life. There's things in my personal life that I'm waiting for. And I have full expectancy that I will see those things. And I'm sure you guys do too. Now, I have a table talk session is for you guys. I want you guys to explore this. What covenant promises, dreams, or blessings do you want to possess? And the next question is, are you willing to partner with God and persevere for the release? So we'll talk about this for a few minutes. Go ahead. So we're going to do something in a minute, but believe it or not, I only got through one of our verses tonight. I have a whole nother verse and teaching, but I'm going to cut that short, but... I have to read the last verse to make it illegal. They'll be mad at me if I don't. Verse four says, I will establish your descendants forever. I will build up your throne from generation to generation. This is a prophetic picture of Christ, of the church, his everlasting kingdom, his God, God's uh, kingdom being established on the earth. There's a great verse in Isaiah 9 where it talks about the increase of his government and of his peace There will be no end, but I think what we need to do, what's more important than me talking for the next whatever time, is um, I believe we're supposed to pray for the release of some of these promises, dreams, and blessings. I think this is something we can do for the next at least five minutes or 10 minutes at our table, and I feel like during worship, too, God kind of placed something on my heart, which wasn't, 
I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't even thinking about it. But what he was kind of sharing, he's like, I'm not done with America yet. I have dreams and desires for America that haven't been realized, and I'm not finished. And I kind of had this picture of Christ sitting on a throne over the White House. And so I think we're also supposed to pray for some of the promises and dreams for this country. Because I'm not ready to give up yet. I'm not ready to allow this country to fall into darkness, into idolatry, into whatever path that we, there is. I think we're supposed to be a light as a church. And that just kind of came to me as I think we're supposed to pray into that of just, God, have your way in this country. Be Lord over this country again. Let this country return to you. Let them fear you again. Let us not turn to our, our wicked ways, but let's not forsake that. Because I think he has, um, he has plans for this nation to be a light to the world, to be a leader. And so for the next few minutes, we're, we're gonna pray into some of the personal things in our life, um, the dreams, the blessings, but also uh, of this nation. So let's do that for about five minutes. I really f feel like we're supposed to do this. Um, and, but if you have to leave, I understand that as well. And so I, let's just do that for the next few minutes and I'll close this. I encourage you guys to keep praying, but I'm gonna close this out because I know some have to leave. But you can keep praying after I pray. But I just wanna pray, Father God, bless us tonight. You know our heart, God. You say that you do more than what we've asked for or what we can even imagine, Lord, because you're such a good father that you're gonna do something even greater than what it is, Lord. And so I just pray for all these prayers tonight, the promises, the blessings, the things that we're holding on to. I pray that there would be a great um, revival of perseverance, God, of, of people remembering the things that you've promised, things that have been collecting dust on the shelf, that you begin breathing on these things, Lord, and that we would see a release of that. We would see a release of that into this earth, a manifestation of that, God. It's not just for another time. It's for now. And I pray that we would see this quickly, Father, because we know that you're faithful, that you're true, and it's for your glory. And we praise in Jesus' name, amen.